You are listening to National Security Law Today. National Security Law Today is back in a new year, and to say we're facing new challenges in national security law may be an understatement. We're recording this on January 10th, just days after the Capitol riot, in which a violent mob managed to overwhelm Capitol Police and disrupt the joint session of Congress convened to certify the election results. Five people died, including a Capitol Police officer. We're 10 days from the inauguration of Joe Biden. Congress is currently contemplating a historic second impeachment of President Trump, and there have been reports that the remaining cabinet members have discussed invoking the 25th Amendment to remove the president from office. Note that two resigned last week. Also outside the Beltway, the mood is uneasy. There have been a lot of comparisons to the government's relatively robust preparations for last year's Black Lives Matter protests against disproportionate police violence, which saw more arrests and kinetic response from police in the moment. At least six state legislators from across the country participated in this, quote, stop the steal rally that the president held right before the Capitol riot. And videos of some Capitol Police officers taking selfies went viral, which has further eroded confidence in the fairness of our system and the example of our democracy as a model to be followed, both at home and abroad. Of course, this will affect our national security in significant ways. I'm Yvette, and helping me parse through the current state of affairs and what laws we should be thinking about at this time is friend of the cast, Harvey Rishikoff. Director of Policy and Cyber Research at the University of Maryland's Applied Research Lab for Intelligence and Security and Visiting Professor at Temple Law School. Welcome back, Harvey. Many thanks, Yvette. I'm happy to be back on the podcast. And I particularly would like to welcome our guest, Mary DeRosa, an old friend who's currently the professor from practice and co-director of the Global Law Schools Program at Georgetown University Law Center. She's also chair of the advisory committee uh, to the Sandy Committee. Welcome, Mary. Thanks, Harvey. I'm very, very happy to be here, and uh, and thank you uh, to Yvette for your very good summary of of the, the sort of sickening uh, situation we find ourselves in right now. Um, I this is my first time on the uh, on the on the podcast, so I'm uh, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Although I I do regret the topic we have to we have to discuss. Thanks, Mary. And we're also particularly glad to have back on the program another old friend, Bill Banks, who is the Professor of Law Emeritus at Syracuse University College of Law and is the current chair of the Standing Committee for the American Bar Standing um, on the Standing Committee. So, Bill, again, always great to have you here and look forward to hear your insights. It's, It's good to be back. I am a veteran of the podcast, but I can't recall the last time we were convened on a Sunday. Uh, so that tells us something about the severity of the situation that we're about to discuss. I look forward to the discussion. And I am Nicole. Remember that the lawyers on NSLT are always here in their individual capacities and not on behalf of any agency, company, or institution of higher learning. We have a lot to cover, so let's get rolling. Um, let's start with the president, because there's been so much discussion about what kinds of legal jeopardy he may be facing. As I mentioned, there is impeachment because of the president's decision to ask his supporters to stop this deal by going to the Capitol. For a deep dive on impeachment, please check out our podcast with Jamil Jaffer and Stuart Baker. But there's also talk of the 25th Amendment, which has never been invoked. What is that and what's the likelihood we'll see it in action? The the 25th Amendment, of course, has been around for 150 years. 
it's been utilized in a few instances to deal with temporary situations involving the president, such as uh, uh, an emergency surgery or some medical procedure that would take the president literally offline for a limited period of time. But now we're, we're here to consider the possibility that a, a more serious and substantive use of the 25th Amendment might occur. There is a provision in Section 3 of the 25th Amendment that allows uh, the, the vice president and a majority of the cabinet to submit a letter to the president pro tem of the Senate and the Speaker of the House uh, asserting that the president is unable to perform and discharge his powers and duties. If such a letter were uh, issued by the vice president and the majority of the cabinet to the speaker and president pro tem, it would then be incumbent on the president uh, to respond with another letter if he so chooses, which says uh, in effect, I'm just fine. If the president issues that response letter to say that he is able to carry out his, uh, his duties, then it's possible for the same set of uh, cabinet officials and the vice president to issue a second letter back to the, the same officials, the speaker and the president pro tem saying, no, he's not. Uh, at which time then the ball, if you will, if this were a game, it's not, would be back in the congressional court and the Congress would have to convene to decide the matter. Is the president capable uh, of carrying out his duties under the present circumstances. Uh, and, and this has never been tested. And for a vote to actually rule that the president uh, is no longer, the president would require a two thirds vote by both the Senate and the House. All of that, of course, would have to occur over the remaining few days of President Trump's term. The real problem with this mechanism is not that it's theoretical approach, although it's pretty cumbersome and unwieldy. The real problem, I'm afraid, is political. Uh, Vice President Pence would have to take the initiative here, and he has apparently stated through his aides that he has no interest in working with this mechanism. In addition to that, that's a, that's a, a death knell for this device right at, uh, at the outset. But in addition, it's not clear there would be a majority of the cabinet who would go along with him. Two who might have gone along with him, uh, of course, resigned last week. Uh, and finally, as if there needed to be yet another uh, roadblock to this device, uh, it's not clear that those members of the cabinet who are acting secretaries are legally qualified to participate in a 25th Amendment proceeding. That question's never been raised, so it's never been answered. But I dare say this this discussion has really now become academic. Uh, thanks, Bill. I think you've made it very clear that 25th is, as you said, a bit cumbersome and has never been invoked. And we'd have to see how it practically would be evolved and we'll have to wait for Vice President Pence to act. But another issue that's uh, whether or not the president might be guilty of treason and sedition. And as you know, there are specific acts and issues that the sedition charge triggers. And there's also rebellion or insurrection. That's another term that has a legal connotation and sort of is in the colloquial dialogue that's getting kicked around. So can we get more specific, Bill, about those terms? Uh, we can. I think we've, and the, the words are, 
actually quite important, aren't they? Starting with treason, I think, you know, uh, treason is a term that sometimes gets loosely used uh, in recent memory by none other than the president of the United States, who's characterized at earlier times uh, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee as uh, having engaged in treason in his criticisms of the president, or uh, Colonel Vindman in his uh, in his role in the uh, in exposing the the so-called perfect phone conversation with the leader of the Ukraine that you that Vindman himself had engaged in treasonous conduct. The, those charges are not true, and we have to be careful here not to uh, uh, fall into the same trap that is uh, in labeling uh, actions as treasonous, which which are not. Treason is waging war uh, against the United States, uh, and in all but the rarest of circumstances, a criminal charge of treason would apply only when the United States is in a state of armed conflict. We're not. So treason does not apply. Uh, there have been no criminal charges of treason since World War II. And obviously it's not the case that the United States has been at uh, all peace and joy during all the years uh, since World War II. Over to sedition and insurrection, it's true that there are these two provisions in Title 18 of the USC, 2283 and 2284, which lay out crimes. I think the problems there, that in case of some of the individuals involved in the activities last Wednesday, it may well be that they, they engaged in insurrection or perhaps even seditious conspiracy, two or more persons uh, involved in insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof. There are two problems. One, of course, is proving the criminal uh, state of mind, the mens rea. In each instance, you have to not only determine that there was a uh, there were activities being taking taking place that did amount to an insurrection against the United States, but that the perpetrator could reasonably foresee that that would be the consequence of his or her actions. The second problem was related to the first. That is uh, the First Amendment. The First Amendment looms large in seditious conspiracy and insurrection cases, because as all the law trained persons who listen know, there's a, a very important but fine line uh, between free expression activities, whether they be behavior or words, and words that may be criminalized. Why don't we leave it right there and, and, and agree Thank to you, talk about it more later. Yeah, Bill, so I think you've sort of have raised the Brandenburg Doctrine, which many of the, our con law students will be familiar with. And as you know, that raised out of a case with a KKK member and an Ohio law that was considered unconstitutional because it was too uh, vague and restrictive. But under the rule, it says, you know, the court has been using a two-pronged test to evaluate speech. Speech can be prohibited. It is, quote, directed at inciting or producing imminent lawless action. And two, it's likely to incite or produce such action. Right. And I think there's some debate as whether or not the president's speech acts that he made on January 6th will trigger that issue. Uh, there's been a resolution for impeachment that's been put forward by Congressman Salini. 
And in it, he raises the issue of the January 6th language of the president, uh, where he stated that, quote, uh, we won this election and we won it by a landslide. Uh, and B, that there was also language, if you remember, on January 2nd, when President Trump urged the Georgia Secretary of State, Brad Raffsenberger, to find enough votes to overturn the Georgia presidential election results and threatened Mr. Rasmussen if he failed to do so. These are sort of issues that are circulating around the potential impeachment charges. Um, uh, we also remember that when Robert Mueller concluded his report, he was of the opinion that DOJ policy constrained the ability to indict a sitting president, but reason that charges like obstruction of justice could be revisited when the president left office. A number of legal commentators have pointed out that some of these statements that the president made vis-a-vis -vis election law may be violations of 52 USC section 2511, and that um, he may have run afoul of the ability to have not avoided some legal responsibility. Uh, finally, uh, if this wasn't enough, as Mary said, to add to this brew, he's also speculated that whether or not the president can pardon himself. And we had a recent broadcast on that uh, with uh, Helen Bulwark, who's a, a pardon attorney that we could look at. And we also had a discussion on the Mueller report for podcasts, if, if our listeners want to listen. But there's this a whole range of a ball of wax of legal issues that have been generated by the president and his actions. And I guess what we'd like to get a sense from both Mary and Bill and Yvette, if she jumps in, is how do you see this playing out? What is your sense, given your experience, how you think these issues will play out over time? Uh, Bill, perhaps you would like to start. Uh, we can well, get that. Uh, what your sense is. Harvey uh, called this a ball of wax, uh, and, it, and it is indeed. Um, we could cite sections of the United States Code uh, for the rest of the time available to the podcast. But, you know, it, as a practical matter, it, it's highly likely uh, that the president is going to pardon himself in the next 10 days. And it seems to me at least more likely than not that he will also issue a prospective pardon to those who are being arrested and charged with activities on January the 6th. And uh, as, as uh, sad as it would be, I think in both instances, uh, certainly in the latter instance, I think the prospective pardon of a group of uh, those responsible for the January 6th uh, siege on the Capitol uh, could be pardoned lawfully because there are no limits, uh, substantive limits to the president's pardon power. And, uh, and if one needs a historical example, we uh, can think back to President Jimmy Carter's uh, prospective pardon of uh, draft resistors in connection with the end of the, of the Vietnam War. I think President Trump could pardon this group. As to whether he can pardon himself, as most of your listeners will know, that question has never been answered definitively by a court or any other senior government official. 
There was a question raised during the Nixon administration in Watergate about whether President Nixon could pardon himself. As we know, ultimately he resigned and then was pardoned by uh, President Ford. Some have thought that that, that uh, pas de deux, if you will, would occur uh, next week with Vice President Pence and President Trump. If President Trump is being uh, straight with us here, that seems unlikely. He says he has no intention of resigning, but I think he could venture a self-pardon. And, and then the only way that the issue would be adjudicated is if he's charged with some other crime. It could be any of the lists that Harvey that you mentioned or others that have arisen during his term in office. If he's charged with a federal crime, he of course would defend initially by saying, you, you know, you can't prosecute me for this. I've been, I'm pardoned. So then a judge would be asked to decide the lawfulness of the pardon, the effectiveness of the pardon in the case of a president pardoning himself. The principle that's at stake here is one that goes back hundreds and hundreds of years in English law that says very simply, no man should be a judge of his own case. That, that's probably at the very top of the list of important principles of Anglo-American law, and it should stand in the way of a self-pardon. Uh, but there's no law. And it would be up to a judge to take the bold uh, step of offering a legal interpretation. Thank you, Bill. I think there's a, a document that Mary McCarthy, if we all remember her from DOJ, the legendary, and she opined that the self-pardon may be not constitutional. Right. But it wasn't really an OLC right. opinion and not sort of, and, and a lot of legal scholars have sort of debated about it. But I guess, Mary, one of the issues also is for you to opine on any one of that we any piece of the wax that you'd like to pick at, but that also um, this would not affect a state prosecution, and we know the Attorney General of New York has some cases pending. And the how do you see that federal pardon unless it's removed from state to federal court to exercise the pardon? Uh, he still would be sort of exposed uh, at the state level. Uh, Mary, do you have any thoughts about what advice you might give the incoming Attorney General, if it's Merrick Garland, about how to proceed uh, in these matters? Well, I, I, I don't know if I will give Merrick Garland advice, but I guess I can. I, I have some thoughts about what he might be thinking about. Um, the but but first on the uh, on the um, state prosecutions, it is certainly true uh, that uh, that the pardon will not cover those. Uh, uh, and I mean, it does it does cover crimes under DC law uh, because that is that is federal law, uh, but it doesn't under New York State. Uh, and we know that there are um, some very uh, very active um, uh, investigations uh, against uh, at the, uh, at the uh, uh, local level in the in the city of New York and. Uh, and uh, at the state level, at least civil investigations of, uh, of him there. So those will go forward. Uh, and um, uh, there is, you know, so that is, that is a risk for, for uh, the president post his administration. Um, uh, what might, uh, as, as Bill said, uh, uh, if the president decides to pardon himself, uh, that is not, uh, that will be the first time it's happened. There is, a, uh, as you said, Harvey, a longstanding 
Department of Justice view that is uh, that it is not constitutional. Self-pardon would not be constitutional. And that, that is the view of many constitutional scholars, but it's not established. And um, uh, the attorney general very well, uh, as Bill suggested, might decide if something, uh, if a case comes, uh, comes up, decide to pursue uh, a prosecution and, and get this issue to the courts for the first time. Um, and, uh, but there are a lot of non sort of technical prosecution. I mean, there are obviously issues with uh, evidentiary issues, which are always very, very difficult uh, in the case of the president, not, I mean, it's sort of a, everybody knows what he meant uh, but uh, but if his terminology is vague, is you know is there is there uh, will will a jury convict? That's that you know any any prosecutor is going to be thinking about that, and uh, um, and those will be real real issues with the president, at least on some of the possible uh, criminal charges against him. Uh, beyond that, um, there's always the question of, uh, of do you want to prosecute a former president? I mean, this is something that has many presidents have considered. Uh, the Obama administration, the President Obama's view was we're looking forward, not backward, uh, not wanting to pursue um, uh, actions against the previous administration. I do think this is different. The, the kinds of activity, actions that, uh, that President Trump is engaged in are simply nothing we've ever seen before, uh, at least in modern US history. And I think probably uh, all of US history, I just am uh, not, uh, you know, I, I haven't done a, a full study, but we are talking about somebody who has engaged in activity that is uh, unlike anything we've seen before. And I think, uh, the kind of traditional view about the, the challenges of prosecuting a former president might uh, might might not hold uh, uh, in this case. Thanks, Mary. I think we, there's been some historical, though thin, sort of examples of the prosecution and impeachment of someone who's left office before, uh, some cabinet members uh, on the grant, but we've never had it dealing with the president. I guess the other issue, Bill, you kind of speculated that the president might think of having a pardon for the individuals who participated in the mob action on Congressional Hill. And uh, what do you see as some of the charges? Because I know the U.S. Attorney, the acting U.S. Attorney of D.C. said he's going to be pursuing cases. What do you see some of the violations that those individuals will be potentially exposed to? Just looking at the uh at the coverage of the initial charges that have been made over the last two or three days, uh, they run a, a wide range of obstruction of proceedings before government departments, restrictions on the, on the use of the United States Capitol grounds. It's unlawful to have been in the Capitol without uh, an authorization at all. And then unlawful activities inside the Capitol or on the Capitol grounds, uh, those are apart from, you know, assault and other charges. As we know, many individuals were, were hurt and some individuals died uh, during this, this period, including at least one uh, Capitol policeman who was uh, apparently clubbed uh, heavily over the head with a fire extinguisher, perhaps directly leading to his death. Uh, so we could we could see some very serious criminal charges arising from that action. I believe that that conduct was captured on 
on video or still, so it certainly won't be hard to at least charge one or more individuals with that crime. Uh, so th the list could grow, uh, I think, of, of criminal charges that can be brought against these individuals. Uh, and, you know, we haven't begun uh, to see them yet. They were talking about hundreds of ongoing cases in the media today. So, Bill, um, thank you for laying down uh, some of the statutes. As usual, we will post to um, the statutes that you mentioned. Uh, and the, the ones regulating, we we're doing the research for this podcast, I, I learned that um, Title 40 governs um, uh, activities on the Capitol grounds. Uh, it's also a good time probably to remind our listeners that we still don't have a statute that criminalizes domestic terror terrorism. We have one that defines it, but not one that criminalizes it. And maybe these events, um, along with the FBI's concerns about the alarming increase in hate group membership and hate crimes, could reanimate that discussion. Um, we will link um, to Southern Poverty Law Center research that reported that the number of white nationalist groups grew between 50, grew 55 percent between 2017 and 2019. Um, we also reposted our conversation with Seth Jones last night, um, I'm sorry, last week on domestic terrorism, in case you want to go deeper on that topic. So one big question is, how did this successful attack on the Capitol happen? We're still unpacking everything, and I'm sure we'll get more details from a parade of investigations, some of which have already been announced. But we know that Mayor Bowser had difficulties activating the D.C. National Guard, and apparently the request of the Department of Defense for assistance were not answered in a timely manner. Fortunately, we did a deep dive with Bill and Harvey back in June on this topic, so we know we've got the right people to answer this question. Can we do a quick and dirty review about some of the authorities we might have expected to be invoked and where the breakdowns happened? This is, a, this is a recurring theme, not only in this podcast, but unfortunately in, in far broader circles. You know, as most of your listeners know, the National Guard are in their default role subject to command of state governors. District of Columbia is not a state. One might expect that the mayor of the District of Columbia would assume the role of state governor and command her guard. Unfortunately, that's not true as things now stand. Legally, the guard in DC are subject, uh, ironically, to con command by the Secretary of the Army who in turn, of course, reports to the Secretary of Defense, who in turn reports to the President of the United States. So federal control remains over the DC Guard, even in their so-called Title 32 or state National Guard capacity. Of course, Mayor Bowser knows that. She learned it, uh, if she didn't know it before, she learned it harshly from last June's uh, set of circumstances at Lafayette Square and beyond. There's a lot of work being undertaken as we speak on revising the law that will allow the DC Guard to be subject to the mayor's control. I think we can expect that law reform in 2021, either as a part of a, a new NDAA or as a freestanding piece of legislation, likely part of the NDAA. Meanwhile, uh, as we learned last week, having a, a federal mechanism with various layers of review responsible for deploying state and local guard uh, does not always work very well in DC. I don't think it was the fault of the mechanism this time. It was, uh, it was that the officials who were involved in the planning before the fact 
uh, either drop the ball in, uh, in, in touch points, in handoff points, or simply failed to follow through on the plans that had been prepared. Apparently the Capitol Police uh, could have called forth a National Guard uh, reserves and reinforcements around the Capitol even in advance of the arrival of the group that was marching from the ellipse up to the Capitol and they simply failed to do so. Thanks, Bill. As always, um, you succinctly laid out some of the issues. I, I think one of the issues that should be generated by this uh, event is an independent commission for us to evaluate uh, in a TikTok what exactly how this unfolded. And part of it is jurisdictional and part is the speed with which uh, the relevant political entities responded to what was taking place. So I, I think uh, I think it would be very helpful. And that then should result in a series of recommendations that may give the mayor a lot potential more power as if she was a governor or he was a governor to be able to coordinate a set of responses of a potential um, riot-like situation. Uh, she has sent a letter, the mayor has sent a letter to the DHS uh, secretary that I think will post making a series of requests to the federal officials uh, in order for one of them being the potential to deny any more permits between the period of now and the inaugural based on either and or COVID issues in a time, place, manner, so that not content-based, but just as a security matter given what's happening. So I think it, this has shown a problem for the city and the district and the Capitol Police vis-a-vis uh, -vis how they coordinate and the speed with which they coordinate uh, being getting protective forces. I would say that when I was at the Supreme Court, we would have activated the Supreme Court police, would have spoken to the Capitol Police, and would have reached out to the D.C. police. Uh, uh, if we would have thought that this was rising to a real sort of siege situation, I think we, through those coordinated state sort of powers or city powers, we then would have, would have reached out to the Department of Defense. But that's why I think it's going to be very important for us to have an investigation as to how this rolled out so that we are not in the future will be confronted with a situation in which the Capitol is unprepared to defend the appropriate buildings. Thank you, Harvey. And uh, yes, the statement from DC's Mayor Bowser that he is referring to, we're going to put that in the notes to the podcast, but she did write a letter to acting DHS Secretary Chad Wolf uh, requesting, among other things, a pre-disaster declaration under the Robert T. Stafford Act uh, and a suspension of any permits. The Washington Post has reported that there are several permits in the approval works for the inauguration. The mayor has asked that the federal government not to approve any permits around the inauguration. Uh, while we are continuing to talk about the coordinated federal response and especially about DOD, there has been reporting that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had contacted the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, General Mark Milley, to discuss precautions to keep a, quote, unstable president from initiating military hostilities or accessing the launch codes and ordering a nuclear strike, end quote. The speaker reportedly told her caucus she had received assurances from the chairman that there are safeguards in place regarding the launch of nuclear weapons. 
Uh, this is obviously a very serious statement. Uh, what is the concern here and what safeguards might the chairman have been describing? Um, this is uh, this is an issue that that's actually come up repeatedly uh, or a concern that has come up repeatedly over the last um, uh, four years. And it, it it is about the the president's authority uh, and the lack of constraints on the president's authority to uh, use nuclear weapons or order uh, a nuclear strike. And it's the the called the, the sole authority issue. The president has the sole authority to order um, a, a nuclear strike. And the procedures for doing that, I mean, the, were developed during the Cold War. The, uh, the priority, the emphasis, the concern was responding to a nuclear uh, attack in, in, uh, in action, they emphasized uh, speed, minutes counted, uh, very efficient, very streamlined process. Uh, but it is a process that um, uh, the president is not, there is, there is no requirement for the president to seek, uh, cons uh, to seek input, consultation, legal advice, legal input, doesn't have to go to Congress, doesn't even have to, uh, uh, either through uh, executive branch process or uh, through legislation doesn't even have to talk to the Secretary of Defense. Uh, so um, there, in, for for a while, there has been a concern that this is something that maybe ought to be looked at, uh, and uh, and uh, presumably uh, what um, uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, was was concerned about was exactly uh, was exactly this that could the president uh, just decide to uh, authorize a nuclear strike and what what safeguards would there be? The fact is that once the president decides and, and issues that decision to the Pentagon, uh, the process uh, required is, is quite automatic. There is a, the decision goes to a, a, um, a team uh, in the Pentagon. Uh, they translate the decision into an order and it gets sent out. Uh, and uh, and then the verification procedures that are required again are only procedures to uh, to make sure it really is the president's decision, uh, verifying codes, etc. A lot of people, and I suspect what uh, General Milley was talking about uh, was a sort of more more informal safeguards, and you you do hear a lot of. Uh, former uh, secretaries of defense and leaders talking about, well, it's not a concern because everyone knows you. the military is uh, required to um, not to follow uh, uh, illegal orders. Uh, and that I think is a little overplayed as a, uh, as a real constraint or a real safeguard uh, because the, it is true that um, members of the military must not follow uh, illegal orders, but it, it is that they must be manifestly illegal. Uh, and uh, particularly if you're talking about someone uh, at a lower level, uh, that's just not going to be clear to them. And the, and the law in this area is, is not clear cut. Um, now that's, that's a worst case scenario. And I think there are very, very serious concerns there. Uh, I, this is an unusual situation, and I, my guess is what General Milley was uh, was saying to the speaker, presumably, um, is is that you know the leadership would hear about it, 
uh, and, uh, and they would uh, exercise control over the situation. The pr process, the procedures don't require that, but they can informally make sure that that happens um, and, and try to turn, turn around the decision, presumably. Um, of course, the president can always fire, uh, uh, fire them. So, you know, that, uh, I think this is a situation that after in the, in the new administration, I certainly hope it's, it is an issue that's gonna get a lot of attention uh, and either through, uh, and many, many people have been paying attention to it uh, and, and recommending that and either through uh, executive branch uh, procedures or through legislation uh, um, adding some uh, some protections into that process. Um, I guess one issue that also is, I will pose to you guys, which is this concept of the how Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube have banned the president's accounts uh, following the Capitol riot. And uh, Parler has now been removed from Apple and Google. Um, and I think the ACLU has already come out saying that the removal of the president's accounts may be, in their view, an inappropriate approach for outright banning of the president being able to have access. So is this, um, it's a, it will raise also our communication, you know, our, the decency, the Communication Decency Act, Section 230, which the president also has been focused on for giving the social media their sort of uh, get out of jail card vis-a-vis -vis no liability for what they post. So I'm wondering between uh, Bill and Mary, what do you see as the outcome flowing from this actions by the social media and what would you recommend? I can take a, a first stab at this and I'll be very brief. Uh, I think that you know, there's there are a couple of points that are not really in doubt here. One is that uh, the, the social media companies are not the government. Uh, and so they're, they're free to make their own decisions about uh, which customers accounts they, they wish to support and which they do not. Uh, it may be wrong for them to distinguish uh, among their customers on the basis of who they are or the content of their message, but it, it's not the government's uh, uh, decision-making in that case. And so there's, there's no First Amendment uh, barrier to the social media companies doing what they've done. And in this case, as you say, Harvey, uh, taking the president off of, of Twitter uh, and the other steps that were taken. The statutory problem that you allude to, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act is, uh, is a different kettle of fish because that essentially removes the liability from the internet platforms for speech that their users post. Very controversial. Uh, hearings have been held, proposed changes to the law, a flat out repeal of that uh, protection, which is what President Trump sought this year with his veto of the NDAA. We all know that Congress overrode his veto, so Section 230 remains. And it'll be something that Congress will be uh, dealing with this year. Mary, do you have additional thoughts about that? Um, only it, it's sort of that the issue is controversial on, on two sides because you a um, few years ago, uh, there was a lot of talk about specifically terrorist content, terrorist speech on uh, in the social media and a big push in the in or at least a lot of talk in the Congress about uh, about 
some sort of regulation of uh, of social media and and requiring them to um, to deal with terrorist speech and and the concern there was uh, uh, the controversy there was uh, um, exactly what you were just discussing, Bill, is that um, that this is the government uh, regulating speech there uh, it's state action first amendment is implicated a lot of this is a uh, uh, political speech and and just uh, you know how uh, how very very major concerns about the government getting into regulating social media uh, and what uh, what content can be on social media on the other side so what does social media do and what has been the answer is is social media engaging in content moderation on its own. Uh, so it is, it's, it's trying to be responsible, presumably, you know, I, I mean, it, to, to some degree, uh, with how it deals both with terrorism uh, uh, content and, uh, uh, and more recently disinformation uh, uh, and, um, and a variety of other things. Um, and then, so then the controversy that has come up on the other side, and, and, and there are these immunity provisions in Section 230 um, uh, that makes, gives them a great deal of flexibility legally on how they, how they do that. Uh, the controversy on the other side is, uh, is that uh, um, the president and, uh, and many conservatives think that they are um, uh, going too far in their content moderation uh, of particularly the President Trump's speech and his supporters. And so um, I don't, I think there probably will be some revisions to uh, Section 230 and, and, and so to the immunity provisions, but um, uh, I don't think enough to, I think that, I think the controversy and the, the difficulty of this kind of, this situation will, will remain. I think and kind of an interesting um, angle on on this too is that you know as Harvey mentioned, um, Apple and Google have banned Parler, which is um, you know known for having looser content moderation policies and and has become a haven for some more extremist content. Um, you know, Apple and Google banned Parler, and Amazon. Amazon announced that they were going to suspend web services. And so now there's sort of like a, an, an additional layer of the big tech industry regulating itself. So we have these three big tech companies that are disrupting um, this platform. And so there's some consternation about whether or not the industry, like these other outsized players, um, effectively killing Parler uh, is something that they should be empowered to do. So I'm sure we're gonna hear more about those um, issues as Congress takes up uh, the CDA issue uh, in the future. Uh, just one last issue, uh, I'd love to turn our attention outward. These events um, have obviously concerned a lot of people in the United States um, regarding the state of our democracy, but we're also seeing a lot of reaction from our foreign partners and adversaries. For example, the prime ministers of Britain, New Zealand, Australia, and India expressed their shock and dismay, while representatives from less friendly nations like China, Venezuela, and Nigeria sarcastically commented on American resiliency. Iran decided to seek a red notice from Interpol to arrest President Trump and numerous U.S. officials um, connected to uh, the killing of General Khashoggi uh, last year, um, and Interpol rebuffed that request because 
they consider it to be motivated by political or military concerns, you know, but it's still uh, a, a significant kind of an extraordinary request to ask for a red notice on a US president. And meanwhile, Kim Jong-un chose yesterday to rattle some sabers, calling the United States his biggest enemy and threatening nuclear buildup. What is the Biden administration to do? Will this diminish our efficacy of our foreign relations going forward? And will this change be permanent? You know, I think probably the best spin on all of this is that it was a one-off, that the Biden administration takes office in 10 days time and relationships will be built and rebuilt in a different direction with those nation states that you mentioned and all others. I think this is a, a stain on the honor of the United States to be sure, but it's not necessarily one that has to last. And I think the Biden administration and the team that's in place there to work diplomacy, foreign relations and national security will from day one uh, be striving to rebuild positive multilateral relationships around the globe. I, um, I'll just add to me, I agree with everything uh, that Bill just said. I think um, there will be, uh, you know, when, when Biden comes in, I think um, most of the, you know, or certainly our allies, most of the world will, uh, will see that as a, a new era and um, a chance to return uh, to, to uh, the views of the U.S. that they've had before. And, uh, uh, but I do think there hasn't been um, a, a seed uh, of distrust sown because of, of the Trump administration. I think most of the world doesn't understand how it happened and doesn't, isn't, isn't confident it won't happen again. Uh, so I think that will continue to complicate things for um, uh, for the U.S. Um, but but I think uh, you know it's not um, there is there will be a break and there will be an understanding that that uh, President Biden is is not President Trump and that um, now uh, the only other uh, point is that I uh, for our um, uh, adversaries uh, and particularly uh, uh, North Korea. Uh, North Korea is absolutely going to challenge the Biden administration very early on. They always do. And, um, and, uh, and so I, I think for sure you'll see that. I think uh, maybe Russia as well. Uh, I don't think that really necessarily has much to do with the fact uh, of the Trump administration. It's just that's what, that's what happens, uh, certainly with North Korea in the beginning of new administrations. So uh, let me, I would just make two or three quick points. The first is, I think, let's not lose the fact that the election was certified, that the Congress went forward and made it clear that uh, President Biden-elect had won the sufficient votes. Uh, two, I think that what has been demonstrated is there's now a certain level of uncertainty about with our allies about what Americans' consistency is. And I think the Biden administration will help build, and it's important for them to build what it means for us to be consistent and reliable allies. But this interregnum of the Trump administration has demonstrated our allies. We do have the capability to go off track and withdraw from a whole set of international organizations that we often created and supported and were major proponents of. But the, you know the big issues that the Biden administration are confronting uh, I think will be a test uh, 
for what this new America post-Trump can do to build us back to the, been the historic relationship we had with our allies and make it clear to our adversaries of our willingness to respond. So uh, it's going to be a quite a challenge, I think, for the new administration. Well, I think we will leave it there. Harvey, Mary, Bill, and Nicole, as always, thank you so much for sharing your legal expertise with us. And thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. We'll bring you more national security law news as this never-ending post-election season brings more surprises. One thing I'd like to add before we sign off is that, as many of your listeners know, the Standing Committee on Law and National Security would typically, absent the pandemic, be holding many in-person meetings during this year and and a large conference on developments in national security law. Because we were unable to do that during this pandemic year, we've created the next best thing. And you should look, if you haven't already, you should look for an upcoming national security law webinar series. They're coming up very soon, actually, January 28th and 29th, a Thursday and Friday, and then the following week, February 4th and 5th. Discussions will continue on these uh, emerging issues in national security law over those four days, several hours of webinar from leading experts in the United States addressing a range of subjects that I'm sure you'll want to follow carefully. Thank you. Thank you. And remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments and feedback. You can find us on Twitter at ABA NATSAC or send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. And the Standing Committee on Law and National Security will continue to keep you informed about these fast-moving legal developments. Don't forget the lawyers hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Uh, And also the guests that appear. (laughs) Be well, everyone. Be safe. We're all in this together, even though we're apart. And we'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy. Thanks.